Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, well, she awaits you there every week. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a wonderful chat room with some super people. So, Ravinder, would you like to, you know, tell us about the glorious nature of your chat room? It's a glorious chat room indeed. Um, there are some great people in there, and they always teach me a lot. We have a a fun conversation going on in there most of the time um you know sometimes it's humorous oftentimes it's educational i always get extra tips um in there so it is it's it's really cool so if you can join us we would love to have you that is a provocative enlightenment.com forward slash chat but please do not come in if you are driving or if your <laughs> boss is close because they can get kind of snarky sometimes. So, uh, yeah, do come in and join us, provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. If you can't come in live, you can always check it out after the event, um, and then you'll get to see any orals or anything that we have posted there, any additional information that may um, assist you in your own journey. See you there. All right. This week I wish to discuss cruelty, for there are many forms of this nasty vice that currently infect almost everything we encounter. Whenever I turn on a cable news network, no matter which one, there is one message always conveyed. It is the message of us versus them. It seems that news as we used to know it, a decade or more ago, has died. There appears to be an agenda that accompanies the news and colors it accordingly. Question. Is the us against them a form of cruelty? I think so. There are many psychological experiments that have repeatedly demonstrated the abuses possible with this mentality. Take, for example, uh, the infamous Robber's Cave experiment. Lucifer Sheriff, a social psychologist who carried out this experiment, um, his main contribution is known as realistic conflict theory. He demonstrated that conflict between groups occurs when two groups are in competition. The events at Robber's Cave mimic the kinds of conflict that plague people all over the world. The simplest explanation for this conflict is competition. Assign strangers to groups, throw the groups into competition, stir the pot a little, and soon there is conflict. There is a lot of evidence that when people compete for scarce resources or ideas, such as jobs, land, political choices, etc., there is a rise in hostility between groups. For example, in times of high unemployment, there may be high levels of racism among white people who believe that non-whites or asylum seekers have taken their jobs. Is competition therefore cruel? And that's a fair question. From my perspective, there is always competition. 
and it in and of itself is not cruel, but how we respond may be. Let's look at another in and out group, the classic story told in Lord of the Flies. This is a story of two groups of boys who war with one another over questions of rule and morality. At an allegorical level, the central theme is the conflicting human impulses towards civilization and social organization, living by the rules peacefully and in harmony, and toward the will to power. Themes include the tension between groupthink and individuality, between rational and emotional reactions, and between morality and immorality. Then we have the classic study known as the Stanford Prison Experiment. Again, we see a division among students, occur and brutality ensue. I could go on, but is it anything but cruel when we so divide ourselves against another group that we no longer think of them as worthy of our respect? Our current political landscape is tearing our nation apart, and we aid in this every time we distinguish ourselves as separate, belonging to the preferred group. In a sense, this is not much different than the behavior of youngsters who mock other children, deriding them with ridicule, shaming them for being a little different, and so forth. Have we forgotten this lesson and failed to recognize that our behavior may not be too much different today? Cruelty comes in many forms, but it always begins by setting ourselves separate from another, usually above them. Oh, there are always rationalizations such as they deserve it, but a rationalization is just that. It is not permission to be cruel and hateful. A poll on Facebook that I responded to this past week asked a simple question. What is the one thing that you think is wrong with our world? The answer for me was quick and easy. Hate. Cruelty is a form of hate, and it begets itself on all if we say nothing, do nothing, and allow its infectious nature to metastasize. So I may sound like a broken record sometimes, but once again, I urge you to set aside the hate and find a better way. For as Seneca once said, all cruelty springs from weakness. My thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder? You know, there's you've got a great deal of material there. Um, I totally agree. There isn't any such thing as news anymore. Um, I'm not certain that there ever was, but if there was, or if it wasn't before, it's just worse now because everything gets politicized. And I watch and I pay attention and I can pick out the words that are designed to shift me into one direction or the other. But back to the whole idea of the us and them, I remember getting into real trouble once on the air um, because what I stated then was when you have the us and them mentality, that is where the seeds of evil lie. Um, now, at the time, the conversation was about Occupy Wall Street, and I wasn't taking a side in any direction. It was just you had these hard divisions. You know, you were either in the group or outside the group, and there was a great deal of friction going on between the two, and it, it was that very us and them mentality that was creating the violence and some of the problems that were going on. I do think us and them is where the seeds of evil lie. And so I would urge everyone out there, you know, don't think of others as being in a group. Um, if someone's got a different opinion to you, they're not them. They've just got a different opinion. So why not 
talk about it and understand that we're all part of the us. Uh, we just have different ways of expressing ourselves, that's all. Well, we have the perfect guest today to take this one, you know, and pursue it uh, as far as we can. And and that's uh, a man who has specialized in this area. But first, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Joshua Cooper Rammel, and we discussed his book and work, The Seventh Sense, Power of Fortune and Survival in the Age of Networks. John wrote, loved your guests, and I followed your urging to read his book. A great book indeed. Thanks for bringing him to your show. CB commented, very articulate guest, though the answers were lengthy. Wish we could have had more. Glenn wrote, I truly enjoyed the show with Joshua Cooper Rammel. Many of us are beginning to feel the alienation of the coming connectivity revolution and see evidence of the coming madness. We are becoming more connected every day but a very little understanding of the new world into which we are running headlong. The powers that be have much invested into keeping the normal man asleep, unaware, and unwilling to awaken. I think we are seeing symptoms of the alienation of connectivity in the form of hypersensitivity to perceived insults and attacks. If you don't agree with me, then you are my enemy. It's a sort of digitally induced paranoia reinforced by impersonal, non-physical connectivity. Moving on, Tony wrote, your interviews bring so much information, enlightenment, and encouragement to my life. They really are life-changing. Peter wrote, I just want to thank Ellen Taylor for his way of spreading the knowledge. I found his videos about a month ago on YouTube when I was searching for anything about subliminal messages and just love the way he speaks and transfers knowledge for others with stories and easy-to-understand language. Really, thank you. I got some of his books now, but I think the audio way is much better. I listened to all that I could find on YouTube and other places, and the way he explains stuff is great. It made me understand about a lot of things in life. Thank you. Okay, now for everybody out there, you should check out our YouTube channel. If you haven't already, you can find it at YouTube under Progressive Awareness. Gail wrote, I have your empowering intuition in her talk CD. It's great. And Robert wrote, there is no higher compliment that can be paid than by that can be paid than for a patron to declare that your products actually work and they are working for me. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But we do love your comments. So please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show, The Psychology of Compassion and Cruelty, Understanding Emotional, Spiritual, and Religious Influences with Professor Thomas G. Plant. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Dr. Thomas G. Plant is the Augustine Cardinal Bia, S.J. University Professor and Professor of Psychology at Santa Clara University, and adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. He has served as psychology department chair, acting dean of the School of Education, counseling psychology and pastoral ministries, and director of the Spirituality and Health Institute at Santa Clara University. He has authored, co-authored, edited, or co-edited 21 books, and he has been featured in numerous media outlets, including Time Magazine, CNN, MBC Nightly News, the PBS NewsHour, 
New York Times, USA Today, British Broadcasting Company, National Public Radio, on and on among many others. Okay. On that, and through the magic of Skype, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Thomas Plant. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be with you. I I really enjoyed the book, uh, The Psychology of Compassion and Cruelty. Uh, It is a fantastic read. When I pick the book up, it seems like it's a textbook, but it... (laughs) Where it has that kind of quality, it also has, I think, a universal appeal, an appeal that all of our listeners would find informative. Uh, Did you write it for the masses or just as a textbook? Well, that's a great question, and usually in a lot of my uh, book projects, particularly with this particular publisher, um, we try to bridge both the academic community and sort of the uh, interested lay reader community. And so it was really written in a way that tried to uh, be appealing to those who are interested in this topic, regardless of their background, uh, but it also is used in um, classroom environments, uh, and uh, and I use it as such uh, here at Santa Clara University. Well, it is a great read, and and I recommend it to everyone. Professor, we like to know three things on this show. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So let's begin by having you tell us about yourself and your interest in the subject of compassion and cruelty. Why that subject matter? Well, as you said in your introductory comments, uh, you know, we seem to be living in a world that is rather cruel. And uh, there's much evidence to suggest that we live in a world where uh, it can be very quick for people to get to us versus them, uh, you know, the enemy versus my friend and so forth. And uh, I am here at Santa Clara, which is a uh, Jesuit university. Much of uh, the Jesuit universities across the uh, country and world uh, focus on issues of of, uh, social justice, of uh, compassion, of building a humane and just world. And as a practicing psychologist myself, I've certainly seen a wide variety of people who are struggling mightily with these kinds of issues. Uh, I also do a good deal of work uh, with the Catholic Church regarding uh, sex offending clerics, and certainly that has been a very hot topic in recent years uh, where um, uh, both uh, uh, perpetrators and uh, victims have um, have, uh, uh, struggled mightily. And so for a variety of reasons, uh, the research that I do have found my way into the, the relationship between psychology and spirituality and religion. And we try to take, an, of course, an empirical approach, trying to move the ball forward in our understanding of how can we create a world that's more compassionate, more humane, uh, more connected. And the implications are enormous, as you know, because uh, we live in a world that could uh, uh, implode, it seems like, at any minute. And uh, there's a variety of things that we can do uh, to make the world not do that. And uh, I want to be part of the the solution and not part of the problem. Well, I think, you know, for what it's worth, a little plug here. Your book is one of those those instruments that can make that kind of a difference. So you do agree with me that this in and out mentality contributes to cruel behavior? 
Absolutely, and I think there's an enormous amount of research. You you uh, quoted the famous Sharif uh, study, uh, um, uh, uh, where they put uh, young, pretty young kids. I mean, these kids were were uh, were were uh, uh, around uh, middle school age, and they randomly assigned uh, some kids to like wear the blue shirt and some kids to wear the red shirt, and very and engage in competition. And very quickly, just based on uh, the color of your shirt, you could get into an us versus them. Uh, mentality. Uh, you also quoted the, the famous Zimbardo uh, study at Stanford, the yeah. prison study that gets a lot of press, and it um, underscores how so easily one who is randomly assigned to either a prison prisoner condition or a, or a prison guard condition can really engage in cruelty. We see this all the time. We see this at athletic events, for example. Uh, you either like the uh, Boston Red Sox or you like the New York Yankees, but you can't like both. Uh, you like the uh, uh, you like the in your in your area in Seattle. You either like the Seattle Seahawks or you like the uh, San Francisco um, 49ers. You can't like both, and uh, you uh, very easily and quickly, even around things like sport and so forth. You can get into an us versus them mentality. They can get out of control pretty quick. And so we really want to put the brakes on some of that to see, as you said in your introduction, uh, that uh, we're in a community, not so much of us versus them, but we. It's always about we. And uh, we may have different points of view about things. We may uh, respectfully disagree about some things, but we're, it's still we. And uh, I think this is such an important uh, concept that we really need to do all that we can to support it. This is a bit of an aside, but I have to ask it, Professor. You know, we we recently learned, of course, that the Soviet or that Russia uh, didn't just meddle with an election, but they used uh, you know social networking platforms to divide people. Uh, you know, they would post things uh, that may or may not have been true. Usually, there was a kernel of truth, but then the best lies build on a kernel of truth just to inflame people, just to divide people. And we seem to see that everywhere, not just in what Russia did, but in our own media. Do you think there's some, um, what, I don't want to say use the word conspiracy, but, but what on earth? I mean, why do you think this is going on in our culture today? Well, I think there's a variety of reasons, and there's a variety of unintended consequences for the, for, uh, as well. So, for example, we live in a world today, as you know, where uh, people either watch Fox News or they watch something like MSNBC. Uh, uh, we don't have a shared news outlet. Um, people watch one, perhaps, or the other, not necessarily both, just like you're rooting for one team or the other. We live in a political world, as you know, the Democrats versus the Republicans. Which side are you on? And what gets lost in these uh, in, the, in this polarity, this divisiveness, is this whole notion of the common good. Uh, that uh, uh, and we have lost that in our social media as well. We've lost that in our news. We've lost lost that in our politics. And um, sadly and tragically, whether this was intentional uh, when these some of these uh, platforms started or not, uh, that's been the outcome. And people have exploited it. And so when you mentioned about the Russian interference with our recent election, who would have guessed that something like Facebook, something that was just a way for, you know, for example, I can stay in touch with my high school friends in Rhode Island uh, now, uh, now that I live in California, or people can stay in touch with uh, uh, people from uh, their friends and family 
family around the globe has been used as an instrument for divisiveness uh, to the point where it could throw an election, uh, presidential election for the United States. This is just remarkable. And so people will uh, unfortunately take new uh, platforms, new media and so forth, and sadly will turn them uh, um, in a way to, uh, ed, uh, to, uh, to get some outcome that they want, even if it's a, a cruel outcome, an evil outcome, uh, and doesn't um, support the common good. And uh, who, who would have guessed this would have happened uh, uh, 10 years ago when Facebook entered into the scene? And who would have guessed this would have happened in the mid-90s when uh, cable news started to become um, prevalent? Right. Right, right, right. Well, again, I suppose that's why I find your book so timely. So let's turn to that. We recently interviewed Dr. Joel Salinas on this show. He has mirror touch synesthesia and actually feels his patient's pain. Now, it's a rare condition. I'm sure you're familiar with it. But this is an example of true empathy. But compassion and empathy are not the same. So if we can, let's begin with a definition of empathy. Um, and if you will, contrast it uh, with with uh, compassion, uh, or actually, to say it differently, let's begin with a definition of compassion and contrast that to empathy. Sure. Well, a lot, people will have different points of view about compassion, and, and not everyone who studies this area will, will be in complete agreement. But in a nutshell, we feel like it is... It, it involves several steps. I mean, the first step is really to kind of to see and empathize or uh, feel someone else's concern and pain. But then that second step is to actually do something about it, to try and console, try to help. Uh, try to do something to alleviate that pain. And so we contrast that with straight empathy, which is, you know, maybe feeling someone's pain, but you're really not necessarily going to do anything about it. You maybe feel bad for the person, uh, but you don't really do anything. And so we believe that compassion has these two elements to it that include not only the feeling, but the action. And we think that's pretty important. So just to feel someone's pain is really not we feel like adequate in, in compassion, one also isn't then motivated to try to relieve that pain. The action, I think, is the most important part of that. I think that's one of your major contributions because I know a lot of people who feel they are compassionate. Maybe, you know, they have their own uh, areas where you know, it, it pains them to see an animal hurt or uh, a child that is uh, abused or well, I mean we all have those areas that we're more or less sensitive to but the action wh what is it that we do about that so yeah, let's do this how do we develop more compassion how do we go about uh, you know incorporating the action behind the feeling right and so this becomes a complex uh, way of, uh, uh, of figuring this out. But I think this is very possible. We have good research on this. We've done research myself on some of this. And so part of it begins when kids are really, really young. Um, part of it in, in involves what kind of environment do they grow up in? What kinds of things do they watch on television and other media and things like that? And we want to create an, an environment to not only uh, support 
compassionate feelings, but also compassionate actions. And so what we need is good models, you know, parents, teachers, people that they see in media. So for example, we see uh, so much competition and cruelty in mass media, uh, shoot 'em up movies, uh, very aggressive, violent kinds of uh, 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 television shows and things of that nature. We need much more uh, shows and, um, and uh, engagement that focuses on cooperation and helping. So we know from observational learning, uh, which is uh, a lot of the research of Al Bandura at Stanford, but as, as well as other folks uh, after his initial studies, demonstrate that we look around and we determine how to think and feel and behave by watching others, like parents when we're really little, uh, and then maybe school peers when we uh, get into school age, and then of course mass media. And sadly, mass media likes to um, push controversy, competition, violence, uh, sexual exploitation, things like this. These are not the messages you want people to absorb and then act on. So uh, we really need a shift so that we model throughout our society, not only um, feeling people's pain, but this is how you act in order to relieve that pain and discomfort. We've got a hard break coming up here, but when we come back, Professor, I'd like to ask you if we have it through this media manipulation that you just discussed, through this entertainment, etc., if we hadn't so desensitized our threshold of arousal mm-hmm. that we've, we've actually become addicted to the need for more arousal and therefore more violence. All right. We're speaking with Professor Thomas Plant about his work and book, The Psychology of Compassion and Cruelty. You've heard me recommend it, I believe, as a very timely book. It is very well written. And uh, textbook or layperson, you will enjoy this, this work. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at scu.edu forward slash T plant. Plant spelled P-L-A-N-T-E. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to intertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor.
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Thomas Plant about his work and book, The Psychology of Compassion and Cruelty. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at scu.edu forward slash T Plant. Spell that last name, P-L-A-N-T-E. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So we just played some of You've Got a Friend by James Taylor. Tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? Well, that's a great question. You know, we listen to music, and we embrace uh, music that consoles us, uh, soothes us, uh, that gives a message. It's powerful. And in fact, um, uh, I have a, one of my regrets in a book that I uh, wrote a few years ago about um, spiritual practices and psychotherapy is I talk about 13 tools for uh, integrating spirituality and psychotherapy. And the one tool that I left out was music because it can be transformative to people in so many ways. And so what we listen to, what we watch, what we eat, what we drink, the air we breathe, all gets incorporated into who we are as a human being. And if you're listening to violent music, aggressive music, disrespectful to other music, uh, you're likely to absorb those messages. If you're listening to, you just played James Taylor's You've Got a Friend, it speak, it's, it's more consoling, it's more connecting, it's more we're all in this together kind of music. And uh, um, I love it myself. And uh, in fact, the very first concert I ever went to uh, in my, when I was a young youngster, a uh, teenager, was James Taylor in, uh, in uh, uh, Tanglewood. And the uh, very first concert my own son uh, ever went to was uh, James Taylor and Carole King uh, <laughs> together um, uh, a few years back. Uh, so I'm a big fan. <laughs> That's great. That's A man walks his talk. You'd be surprised sometimes about the folks that are preaching love is all there is and then the song they choose is you know the neighbor done me wrong the train ran over my dog (laughs) anyway just on an aside as i promised before the break 
given all the negativity that we're surrounded on uh, in the media and the games, etc., uh, I have sensed that there is a systematic desensitization of our threshold of arousal going on. I remember doing a paper oh, years ago now, maybe 10 years ago, uh, that had to deal with this. And I used uh, Sylvester Stallone and his uh, in, in cold blood, not in cold blood, his uh, Stallone's movies. Um, Rocky? No, you get even, you know. Uh, oh. First blood, first blood, that's it. Thank you. And uh, what you what you saw when you watched this series of, and I believe there were four movies now I'm pulling from my mind, was the amount of violence that increased from the first one to the second one to the third one. So, and again, off the top of my head, in the first movie there was maybe one killing in, you know, the first 30 minutes. But by the time you got out to the fourth movie, there were 20 or 30 in that mm-hmm. same period of time. Do you think that this, all this negativity has desensitized us? And if so, then, does that give rise, one, to us behaving in a less sensitive, less compassionate way? And two, because we seek arousal, does it create an addictive kind of cycle where we chase even more of the violence? Yeah, that's a terrific question, and it's a question a lot of people have been asking for a long time. And in fact, that's a question that the American Psychological Association has been addressing. In fact, they have just recently approved a a white paper that if it hasn't been um, uh, published yet, it will be published very, very soon in the American Psychologist, the flagship journal for the American Psychological Association, that talks about the relationship between media, exposure to violence, and then actual violent acts. And it ends up being a kind of a complicated, not a simple answer. And a lot of it has to do with issues around people who were vulnerable to uh, to violence are more perhaps more susceptible when they experience violent media. So it's not so much that if, you know, a random person watches a, a shoot 'em up movie or something like that, that they're going to run out and start um, being violent, but rather those who tend to be more vulnerable to begin with. We also see this when it comes to pornography. You know, as you know, online pornography is a huge problem that often speaks to violence and things like uh, uh, that interfaces between uh, uh, sexuality and violence and so forth. And uh, there is some preliminary research regarding the uh, the proliferation of online uh, pornography uh, that that desensitizes people, that uh, people habituate to a higher, higher level of arousal and so forth. And that becomes problematic uh, in terms of real relationships, real intimate relationships, as opposed to online ones. So that's kind of an emerging, really concerning area as well. And so the I think part of the thing we have to do here is to be very thoughtful and mindful of what is the best research telling us about the impact of violent violence exposure on aggressive behavior and so forth. And there is some good research in that area. And we have to look at the same kind of research when it comes to pornography and other uh, issues around habituation towards more and more stimulation and so forth. 
and then try to come up with policies and best practices based on that data. For me, and I've always uh, thought this way, even with my own son, who's actually uh, now at this point, he's a college senior uh, at Dartmouth in uh, New Hampshire uh, and far away from home. Uh, we were always extremely careful about what kind of media exposure uh, he had. And I know a lot of other parents are, too. Uh, um, and uh, and uh, in terms of gaming, aggressive uh, material uh, issues, uh, that uh, movies that he may, maybe he, may he might seen, and to try to provide alternative activities, you know, things like, uh, you know, Boy Scouts and other kinds of activities that's maybe more nature-based as opposed to media-based. And so uh, there's a lot of things I think we all can do, regardless of the research, uh, or the, where the research is right now, to try to create environments that are... Um, less violent, more respectful, more compassionate, and so forth. Do you, uh, I mean, maybe this is a jaded perspective, but do you think that we've passed that tipping point where you can turn things around short of some kind of biblical Armageddon? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, you know, it's a tough one because, you know, there are uh, experiences that we all have had uh, and in our culture where people have turned things around based on some story. Let's say, for example, with the clergy abuse crisis in the Catholic Church, it took these, uh, the, uh, the, uh, John Gagan, the priest in Boston, and Cardinal Law in 2002 to all of a sudden unleash uh, a, a whole movement and momentum to look more thoughtfully and carefully about clergy abuse in the Catholic Church and to do something about it. Uh, and uh, I think that ultimately was a, was a moment where uh, things really shifted from uh, top to bottom. We might have seen that again in the Penn State football uh, problem with uh, the assistant coach sexually violating children. Uh, that just unleashed a, 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 a more thoughtful and appropriate way to look at um, uh, kids who might be sexually uh, being violated in um, sports. So, you know, we, right now we're in the middle of this um, Harvey Weinstein uh, situation in, in, uh, in, the, in, in the entertainment industry that has started this Me Too kind of movement across the country and world around uh, sexual victimization of women. So, you know, I am hopeful that when the conditions are right, we do make some important shifts, but there's a lot working against us. You know, uh, Hollywood and media and so forth, uh, um, they, they want eyeballs, they want money, they want, they want influence. And, and uh, when you, people are more likely to go to uh, shoot them up movies than uh, kind of loving, caring movies. Uh, people, people don't necessarily want to see cooperative sport. They want to see aggressive sport. You know, football and hockey and these kinds of sports are very, very aggressive. Um, if it was up to me, I'd like to see football turn into flag football, although my wife, who's a football fan, rolls, rolls her eyes at me when I tell her I'd like f professional football to be flag football. <laughs> Cool. You know, all right. You know, I've got to ask you this, although you know, I have to choke back my laughter on that one. Uh, I think flag football is a good idea, by the way. Uh, you know, recently we have seen a lot of cruelty perpetrated in the name of religion. Uh, we, I think specifically of the hands of some of the religious fanatics, such as uh, videotape beheadings, jihadists, female mutilations, etc. and so forth. And so I'd have to ask you, as a religious person, as a spiritual person, 
Uh, is religion a positive force in the world or a divisive one? And please unpack the reasoning behind your answer. Yeah, that's a great question and a wonderful question that so many people ask uh, and have been asking for years. You know, is all, at the end of the day, is religion good for the world or bad for the world? And then probably the, the short answer is that it's both. It's like a lot of things. You know, a car is a wonderful thing. It gets us where we want to go. But a car in the hands of a drunk driver is a very bad thing. Uh, and uh, so media is wonderful. Facebook, uh, uh, television, uh, Instagram, and so forth. It can be a wonderful thing. Uh, we can stay connected with people who live far away from us who we don't get to see. And it can be a horrific thing when it's a, being used to propagate, uh, you know, evil and, and uh, cruelty and things like that. So it's both a good thing and a bad thing. And, and to unpack that a little bit more carefully, uh, we see that, for example, uh, and based on some really good research uh, from a, a fellow named uh, Professor Jones at Rutgers uh, in New Jersey, uh, looks at what well, we look at sacred values. When sacred values are um, impacted, are um, disrespected, people can really kind of lose it. And that's what we're seeing in, in some of these religious-based uh, violence. We also see it in some of this uh, patriotic-based kind of violence, too. You know, desecrating the flag, for example, or currently, you know, back to football, where people don't stand, the players don't stand for the national anthem. It's really set some people off. Um, and this whole notion of, is, is that when we have something that we believe is sacred, whether it be our religious tradition, um, uh, religious scripture, uh, whether it be our religious point of view or patriotic points of view or whatever, racial points of view, uh, then that gives us the justification to um, get violent. So, for example, if someone desecrates, let's say, the Quran, um, that's a sacred document to those from the Islamic tradition. It may not be a sacred document to people who are not from the Islamic tradition. And so if somebody does something like destroy the Quran or, or, or um, fire, set fire to it, that, that's going to set some people off. And uh, we see that, let's say, in the Christian tradition, to desecrate, let's say, the crucifix or uh, the Virgin Mary or, uh, or Jesus in, in, in general, or um, this is going to set some people off. Or in the Jewish tradition, desecrating, let's say, the Torah um, or, uh, or, or a synagogue or something like that, uh, that can get set, set people off. So, so wherever we see sacred values and behaviors and traditions that get disrespected, dissed, then we're in trouble. And religion tends to, tends to be a ripe place for that. So one of the ways to work around that, and, and this is uh, what I come to a lot, is that if you treat everyone respectfully and compassionately, and both are necessary, it's not just compassion, but you got to add respect in there too, uh, then we're less likely to find ourselves in these polarized um, uh, ways of being. Uh, even though we may not agree with um, uh, people with different points of view, even if they're overly aggressive or, or what have you, if we can at least respect them as human beings, um, that's half the battle. A lot of people, uh, ISIS and, and others who behave in such um, violent ways, a lot of them feel really dissed. And uh, dissed means feeling disrespected. If you can at least respect them as human beings, try to understand that point of view. You may not agree with it, but you try to understand that point of view. Offer us some compassion. I think we'd uh, move the ball a lot um, uh, more forward than we, than we are now. And religion can, and can be a force of good in this uh, if it's managed well. 
Let's take the sacred for a minute. It seems to me that, uh, you know, part of the secular progressive movement is uh, this notion of relativism. Mm-hmm. And wherever I go, no matter where I speak, whoever, you know, there's going to be people there who um, don't believe in sacred as in the tradition you and I might think. I mean, sacred mm-hmm. would mean truth. It would mean uh, of extraordinary value, uh, etc. In the world of relativism, you know, people that carry out uh, according to, well, let's say the fellow that cuts the girl's, the teenage girl's ears off because she failed to please him after he purchased her in Pakistan. Uh, where I'm affronted by that, you would be affronted by that. Relativism says, well, that's their values. That's that's the way they live. How do you how do you see this relativism impacting the very nature of what we call or hold sacred? Right. The terrific question. And it's a great uh, I teach an ethics uh, class, which I'll be teaching actually in a few minutes here, where we talk about this very issue that, yes, cultural relativism is one approach to trying to figure out what's right and wrong, what's ethical and not ethical. And some cultures or some communities out there do things that we would find very um, uh, egregious, Uh, let's say, cutting off the ears of a young woman or something like that, or or let's say um, female circumcision or or um, honor killings and things like that yeah. and um, and so we d- we would say that look there's a lot of different approaches to ethics and morality and things like that cultural relativism is only one we also have utilitarianism and absolute moral rules and certain virtues and values and uh, justice and so forth and that um, we need to be thoughtful in terms of uh, looking at a wide variety of approaches to come up with good solutions and that uh, we would say that sometimes Times, certain ethical principles globally and universally trump others. So there have been efforts over the years of having um, an emphasis on world ethics, global ethics. And there are some principles that have merged out of that effort, including things you don't murder people. Yes, people might kill each other in war and and in self-defense, but you don't murder people. Another one is to take care of young children. You don't exploit young children. You take care of, you nurture and you take care of them. And so there's a variety of uh, global ethical principles that basically cultures across the world have said, yeah, we're, we're on, we're, we agree with that. So I agree. We can't say cultural relativism is the end all in terms of solving moral ethical problems. It's just one approach. And sometimes we say uh, there's other approaches that are going to trump it. Just like, for example, people from other countries across the world might come to the United States and say, well, hey, in my culture, it's okay for me to beat up my children if they don't act well. Or in my culture, uh, uh, women shouldn't have um, access to health care or education and they uh, can't drive a car. And we say, well, you know, as long as you live in the United States, you can't do that uh, because we have other principles and laws and so forth that trump uh, cultural relativism. Yeah, I, 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 I guess I don't share your optimism there. I think it uh, cultural relativism is a is a, an escape mechanism for justifying anything and everything. But that's yeah, I would just agree me. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I think that often that is the case. People can say, hey, uh, in my culture, it's okay for me to do in this, this and that, and, and that may justify behavior that is very egregious. So I, I certainly wouldn't disagree with you with that. 
Thank you, sir. Let's address competition for a moment. For Ayn Rand, competition is not only natural, it is necessary. People compete for everything, from the house they wish to buy to the job they're seeking, for the grades they get in school, the graduate training, on and on and on, including for our mates. That said, competition is often viewed as unworthy of the loftier side of man, and as such, many schools award everyone a ribbon, so there are no losers. Hmm. Professor, three-part question. What is your long view on the nature of competition? Is it inherently something we wish to minimize or eliminate? And if so, how do we go about doing that? Well, this is a great question. It's a wonderful question, and um, it's uh, 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 and and part of it is you know you can't avoid competition. Um, uh, the question is how do we compete? And so, for example, we have a globe that has seven billion people on it, and quickly approaching eight billion. We've got a country that has three hundred twenty-five million Americans, uh, and uh, there's only so many. Uh, jobs. There's only so many uh, slots in uh, selective colleges. There's only so many potential mates out there. Uh, we have businesses that compete with one another. And so inevitably, competition is part of the human condition, and it always has been and probably always will be. Uh, and yet, how do we compete with one another? And this is what's so important if we think about respect and compassion always under all circumstances and to try to uh, do uh, competition, engage in competition without demonizing the others. And so we try to teach kids this in sports, you know, hockey and soccer games and football games and baseball games and so forth. And certain sports try to really, for example, we have what, uh, what's called the Positive Coaching Alliance, which is uh, an organization that really tries to su support good sportsmanship and things of that nature. Uh, my son is a track guy. He runs track uh, in college. And I'm always very pleased that after any, he's a 400 runner, after all, after the competition, regardless how he does or his peers do they all shake hands together they all wish each other well uh, and there's no real animosity uh, at, uh, at that I have experienced at least least in collegiate um, uh, track meets uh, um, uh, for, for sprinters, for example, which is what I would focus on. And uh, I think we have to use those good sportsmanship principles as best we can in order to um, look at competition you know, globally. And sure, there's going to be winners and losers. But if we treat everybody with respect, if we treat everyone with compassion, uh, we, we will sometimes be the winner, sometimes be the loser. And um, uh, that's OK. Yes, uh, it, it is OK. That's how life is, I suppose. Professor, uh, you're a prominent proponent of do the right thing. We've only got about 30 seconds, and this is horrible of me to ask you with that time constraint, but how do we know what the right thing is? That's a great question, and it's something that we're always reflecting and discerning about. If we're thoughtful people, if we want to do the right thing, then we want to reflect on our decisions. We want to talk to others about it, get consultation. We want some tools that are out there, you know, uh, readings that we can do, uh, 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 interactions with uh, uh, groups that are supportive, uh, loved ones, uh, and so forth. And we want to ultimately discern to figure out who are we 
and who do we want to become? Every decision we make, whether we're intentional or not, is answering the question, who am I and who do I want to become? We want people to have tools to help to reflect and discern to make those answers good answers and to keep learning as we do so, so that we're always working at this. This is something we're never finished with. We're always working at. We want simple principles. People have different points of view about what those principles are. I tend to like the whole respect and compassion thing. I think it organizes and centers how I operate in my life, and it may help organize and center how other people operate in their life. I want to thank you, Professor, for your work and for your willingness to share it with us. The Psychology of Compassion and Cruelty. Go get the book. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week. Till then, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. <laughs>